On today's episode, I'm answering all of your Run Smarter Q&A questions. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Thanks for joining me again, Run Smarter Scholars. We have four more questions to answer coming in from social media, Facebook, Instagram, Instagram stories, um, all of those. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Rich Willie. There was a ton of positive feedback, so thanks for getting back to me and letting me know. Um, Just at the time of recording here, I actually took a screenshot of people's responses and sent it to Rich, just to share the love, let him know that everyone's really appreciating it. And he said that he's been getting a ton of followers onto Instagram, onto his account, um, which is always a good sign. So well done, everyone. I hope you enjoyed and um, thanks for sharing your feedback. Uh, What else do I have to go through? Um, If you saw last week, I posted onto social media um, a 5K training plan up on YouTube. I... released a playlist, which is essentially on the YouTube homepage, will have a playlist that says the ultimate 5k training plan and videos in order of, uh, from week one, then some midweek videos to watch, then week two midweek videos to watch all to help you run smarter and exactly what to do, how to do it, when to run, how far to run, how fast to run, when to take your recovery days, how to listen to your body. Um, Essentially, week one will give you the rundown of what the week structure looks like, and then the playlist will direct you which midweek videos to to watch. Uh, Let's just say, for example, week one has three videos on how to run smarter and how to decrease your risk of injury. Because if you're just starting a 5K training plan, if you haven't ran before, if you're starting from scratch, this is a crucial moment to like it's usually the riskiest. And so I've carefully placed three videos for you to watch throughout the week to reduce your risk of injury. And then you move on to week two. This is exactly what you do on week two. These are the videos to watch midweek and then move forward into a four week training plan has modifications in there as well. Um, So if one particular week is too easy or too hard, I list out some modifications for you to make. So it's, um, taken about three months to sort of plan all this out and now it's being posted getting great feedback so thanks for all that if you want to check it out you know where the youtube page is you can go to playlists and start a video one 
the other idea I have for the podcast, you can let me know what you think. I think I might put a poll up or something. Um, as the podcast grows, we're at about 6,000 downloads per episode. Um, as someone finds the podcast, they see, you know, 270 episodes and, you know, maybe you go through the, the first 10, which I always recommend. But then who is going to go through all of them and get to the recent ones? I know some of you are. Some of you reached out and said that you're doing that. So absolutely amazing work, but I don't expect that from everyone. But I look at through, so episodes, say, 20 to 50, there are some fantastic episodes in there. But I look at the downloads and there's only maybe 1,500 people that have seen that. Um and these are just like some of my favorite episodes. <laughs> so I understand that if you find the podcast, usually you listen to the first few, maybe have a, a, a quick flick through, download some that you might be interested in. And then after that, you're just following the most recent. That's what I do with the podcast that I stumble upon. Um, but I kind of want to do some, you know, from the archives, like Brody's best pick from the archives and base that on the ones that haven't had a lot of downloads, but are my favorite and sort of list out why they are my favorite and then replay those episodes. Maybe do that every three or four weeks or something. Um, just so it can be fresh on the feed and maybe you have listened to that episode. Maybe you were following the podcast two years ago and found it great, but maybe listening to it again sort of refreshes your mind on a certain topic. I don't know, um, an idea I'm playing around with, something I might implement in the next month or so. Um, okay, we have some Q&As. And sorry if I didn't get to your question. I had about 15 to choose from. And I answered all the patrons um, two weeks ago. Now we're getting into you know the general social media feed. And so I had to filter through a few. Some are really good. That I didn't answer. And that's only because I have put that as a, on the list of turning it into an entire, like a whole episode. I think there's a lot of directions to take it. It's a, it's an interesting topic, um, plenty to talk about on that topic. So thought it'd be a good idea just to put it by the wayside, add it to my list of solo episodes to do in the future. So, um, <clears throat> Alyssa and Horsty, I have got your two ones. Um, Horsty, you mentioned about using a metronome um, to slowly increase your cadence over the last few months. And now that you're at 178, you're feeling comfortable and unsure if this 178 is your ideal cadence. I'll be answering that one. And Alyssa, you said that um, you asked what to focus on during your off season. If you're one year, if you're, if you've got a marathon coming up in a year's time, Great questions, great topics. I'll answer those later. Question one comes in from Ashley. What is the best way to have a deload week? Do you reduce the volume, reduce the intensity or both? Thanks for submitting this question, Ashley. Um, I guess we can start by saying that your deload week or down week or whatever people want to call it would is different to a taper. So a taper is before a race and the purpose of a taper is to reduce your training load with the sole purpose of getting um, peak 
performance on a certain day. So we're trying to adjust your schedule so that you're feeling fresh and ready for your best performance on a certain period of time. And so how we usually structure that, um, everyone responds to a taper differently. Uh, if you've listened to my conversation with Jason Fitzgerald, um, or if you've read the Run Smarter book, uh, there's information on the taper in there. And it seems like the research suggests that you want to decrease your volume by about 50%, give or take, but you want to preserve a lot of your intensity. So your strides or your quality workouts should still be in there. And a two-week taper on average is probably best for most, like 10 to 14 days. And so the volume takes a hit, the intensity doesn't, and the duration's about two weeks. So keeping in those intensity sessions means that your um, elasticity in your body and your ability to perform is preserved, but you still feel fresh legs on race day because you've decreased your overall volume. So the purpose of a deload week is different. A deload week is required or recommended when you're encountering a certain amount of training load or decrease in recovery and your body's just getting taxed. It's starting to feel sore. Um, you're just getting these signs that you need some recovery rather than persevering through your training plan. And so it also serves a, a benefit of uh, this training recovery cycle in order to adapt. So if we use like one training session as, as an example, when you train and you work out and you do a hard session, you don't get stronger during that session. You get stronger after that session once you've got adequate recovery. And so these are when the ingredients and the components of the perfect adaptation phase take place. So you train, let's just say you do <clears throat> a gym session or a hard 3K run. You then recover. The next day you might have a, a recovery run or a rest day or something along those lines. And the body has an opportunity to adapt and rebuild from that quality workout. So a deload week is that same process just spread over a longer duration. You sort of have these mini adaptations session by session, but then you should have a longer adaptation session sort of week by week or month by month. And so the deload week is perfect to decrease your training volume so that adaptation process can occur. The structure of a deload week depends because like we say, it doesn't serve a particular purpose like a taper week, this one is just, you know, allowing you a bit more recovery when your body needs it. And so it can come in different ways. So I understand your question, Ashley, and why you have this question, because there's a bit of uncertainty how to actually implement it. This is where your intensity can decrease. This is where your volume can decrease. Um, it can be one or the other, and it might not even be a whole entire week. You might need to take one rest day in the week, or you might need to take two rest days in a row and then you're back to fresh legs and you've sort of reached that or satisfied that adaptation cycle and you're good to go again. So it really depends. Um, it depends on the training that you're doing, depends on how your body's feeling, it depends on your recovery. Um, but I have some instructions on exactly what to do. 
So first of all, you want to listen to your body. I say that a lot and it's very, you know, wishy-washy, but has some merit. If you listen to your body and you feel like your body requires a deload week or a couple of rest days, so you might have muscle soreness that's extending longer than usual, you might be feeling a bit of lack of energy, lack of um, enthusiasm to train, those sorts of things, then implement something. Either decrease the overall load, maybe do a couple of days of 50% volume and see how you feel. Um, maybe take one or two intensity sessions away from the week and see how you feel. My gut feeling is if you've gone through week by week preparing for a race and over one or two weeks your training volume has increased and you feel like you need a deload week, I would de decrease the volume. But if the volume stayed somewhat consistent throughout your training plan and you've just recently added in some faster speed sessions and your body feel, feels like it needs some recovery, I would back off the speed, keep the volume the same, but just back off that intensity. So that's just a gut feel of something you can try. Um, but like I say, it might not have to be an entire week. We might not have to be that abrupt. It might just be a couple of rest days, some good night's sleep, um, and see how you feel after that. Again, we're listening to our body, um, which brings me to an uh, uh, interesting point. You, you want to... You don't want to just consider the training volumes and the training intensities and the overall external training load. You also want to look at recovery because you could be in a maintenance phase and not increase your mileage and not increase your intensity, but still need a deload week or a couple of deload days because your recovery has been negatively impacted. So that's when we start the discussion of sleep or nutrition, or stress. And if these things are popping up, then we want to make sure that we adjust our training loads accordingly. So not just the external loads, but focus on the internal recovery as well. Um, and then every time this happens, we just put we put on our, uh, our science hat, our researcher hat, and then we conduct an experiment and say, all right, maybe I take two rest days and see how that feels. And then we wait for the response. We wait for your the feedback from your body. And then we make an adjustment based on that. And you'll be surprised if you run these little experiments and do it, you know, six to 12 times a year, how much you can actually hone in on your body and guess or start to hone in on the, the right deload decisions to make. You might say, okay, last week I had a volume increase of 15%. This one's a bit more consistent. My body's feeling a bit sore. I'm getting some good sleep and got some nutrition. I feel like I need to take maybe one extra rest day and let me just see how I feel. If you just, you know, run that hypothesis, run that test, see what the feedback is like, you can then hone in on something that's pretty effective. So not a lot of, you know, concrete, practical takeaways for this answer, but it really depends. Um, the taper is a little bit more specific. The deload depends. So hopefully, actually, that sort of clears things up and you can start experimenting yourself. And you who's listening as well, maybe do some experiments if you're noticing that you do require a deload week, exactly what to do. 
Um, or you could just structure them in. Usually when I'm working with clients, um, I would just plan things out to an upcoming race and have a couple of buffer weeks, like two or three buffer weeks if we have that time available, just so we can say, you know what, um, let's just have these weeks in limbo just in case you need a deload week. Then we can just place it in when your body's sore or you're tired or you've under-recovered. We can just place it in. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. And just allows a bit more flexibility in someone's training. Okay, next question comes in from Jessica and asks, what is the best way to get back running after a stress fracture? So this has happened to you. If you do have a stress fracture, Jessica, um, I know it's uh, it's a frustrating time for a runner if they're diagnosed with a stress fracture. It's one of the worst running-related injuries out there because patience, diligence is required, which a lot of runners don't have. And yeah, it's, just, it's treated so much more seriously and longer than other running-related injuries. Um, so... Usually for a running-related injury, we like to sort of preserve as much strength and endurance and running volume as possible. And we sort of say to ourselves, um, well, as a therapist anyway, how much running can this person tolerate with this injury? And um, what can we get away with? How much can we do? But for stress fractures, it's just different. Um, most running related injuries, we can say, yeah, you can exercise, um, less than a four out of 10 during provided that it returns to baseline. Um, mostly less than 24 hours. Some other injuries I say less than 12, but you know, a little bit of pain's okay. Tendon injuries. We say, yep, a little bit of pain's fine. A little bit of pain during your, your slow, heavy loading. Fine. But again, stress fractures, completely different. Um, why it's different is because, well, first of all, the risks of complications, if you make it worse, is very real and very serious, should be taken very seriously because if you have a stress fracture and you can, if it goes undiagnosed or if you just continue to exercise on it and make it worse, it can turn into a fracture, which is very serious. And in some levels of... in some areas of the body where stress fractures are common, uh, that can have a, that could be a location of low blood supply. And so if it does fracture, it takes a very, very long time to heal, sometimes eight to 12 weeks. And the other reason why we treat this differently as opposed to other running related injuries is the turnover. The adaptation turnover is very slow. Um, If we're looking at a tendon, where we exercise it and then we rest it and it gets stronger because of it. It sort of responds. We call it tendon synthesis. It's this response to exercise. Usually 24 to 48 hours is that turnover. Um, For a bone, the bones respond to exercise in a similar way. You will strain the bone through exercise. It it, uh, adjusts to that. It sort of monitors that particular trait and says, okay, let's adapt 
and it takes a, a bit of time to recover that adaptation cycle. That sometimes will take two to three weeks, sometimes longer, that response to exercise. And so the adaptation turnover is a lot different in bone than it is to muscle, tendon, those sorts of things. Um, while we also like, I also mentioned the high and low risk locations. So the management for these will be different. High risk would be there's like the neck of your femur. So your thigh bone is a high risk area because if that fractures, that becomes very serious and doesn't really have a lot of blood supply. Um, there's a foot, uh, there's, there's a bone in your foot that has very, very low blood supply. So if you get a stress fracture there, that can be um, worrying. If you're looking at your shin, your tibia, if you have a stress fracture on the inside, the medial side of your shin, that's actually a low risk. But if you have a stress fracture on the lateral side or the anterior side, which is the, the outer side of your shin, if you have a stress fracture there, that is high risk. And this is essentially because when you load your shin, you're actually bending it like a, um, like a, a bow, a bow and arrow type of bow is sort of bend in one particular direction. And when you load it and it bends, if the stress fracture is on one side that causes the bones to pull apart, so like one edge of the bone will pull apart, the other edge of the bone will sort of compress. So we call that traction and compression. If your stress fracture is on the traction side and pulling the bones away from each other or pulling that side away from each other under load, you know, that can get pretty serious and can pull apart a bit easier. But if it's on the compression side when it loads, it's a little bit safer because it's not going to, you know, pull apart as much. So that's why that would be a low risk, but still want to abide by um, serious kind of protocols when it comes to those things. So um, in saying all that, we used to totally offload stress fractures. Let's just say you had a stress fracture in your tibia and um, we say this is very, very serious. Let's take some time off and we put you on crutches, non-weight-bearing crutches for, you know, two to three weeks, let it heal. Um, we're now sort of shifting our management towards, yes, you can load it a little bit provided there are no symptoms. So if you can walk pain-free um, and there's no ache, there's no, you know, increased achiness afterwards, um, later that night, if you can tolerate that amount of walking, this amount of steps per day, then you probably should do that rather than completely offloading it with some crutches and just waiting two or three weeks. We think the management's a bit better loading what what's tolerated. Um, and a lot of these, this advice would depend on the location because you can have a stress fracture in your foot, in your shin, in your femur, in your back, in your hip. Um, so this will all just depend, but I'm just giving some generic stuff. But as you start to heal and you follow the right protocol, because each location and severity and what stage will give you like your management team, your health professionals or your doctors or specialists will give you a certain time frame and say partially weight bear for this period of time, um, start weight bearing for this amount of weeks, back to running in this amount of weeks. But here is a protocol of how you can slowly integrate more weight-bearing activities. So you can start off with swimming or pool running, which will be zero weight-bearing. 
you can then transition into something that's weight bearing, a weight bearing activity that is less than walking. So less than one body weight. And that is where you can do some rowing and that's where you can do some cycling. And the duration that you do that and the intensity that you do that will depend on the injury. You'd start low intensity, you'd start for maybe 15 to 20 minutes. And if that's tolerated, builds up from there. But once that's tolerated, we can then move into full weight bearing that is low impact. So we're talking walking, hiking, and elliptical. There's going to be other ones here, but these are just the ones I suggested or just wrote down. So your elliptical, your hiking, your walking will have like one to one and a half times your body weight as you walk. And you can see what's tolerated. Again, try 15, 20, 25 minutes. See what symptoms are like. Then once you can tolerate a pretty significant amount of walking, we can then try a little bit of, say, jumping or trying to increase your body weight of the force, which is more than one and a half times your body weight. So we can look at jumping. So some uh, small jumps, but just double leg. So that might look like just a jump rope or skipping rope and doing that working your way through that particular phase. Um, you can come up with your own progression chart of the amount of repeats, um, time on, time off, and see how you respond to that. Then we can go to something that looks a little bit more like running and has a little bit more ground reaction force, which would be jogging on the spot. Once you can jog on the spot, 60 seconds, two minutes, um, five by two minutes, then we can definitely have the discussion of our walk-run program. Once you go into the walk-run program, you then progress through your phases. You can then start adding more continuous running. Once we're doing some continuous running, um, it's really easy from there. We just slowly trickle in speed, trickle in hills, and all of these stages are just trying to see how your symptoms behave, trying to increase the amount of load and paying attention to symptoms along the way. If at any stage symptoms increase, then we have to back off. And at each stage, hopefully we notice zero symptoms during, zero symptoms after, and zero symptoms the next day. Okay, question number three from Nikki. How do I progress from a 21 minute 5K to a 20 minute 5K? So essentially taking one minute off your 5K PB. Good question. Let me discuss, um, rattle off some ideas because, you know, you can ask five different running coaches and they'll have five different answers. Um, so let me just start by saying, if you want to increase your running performance, I would have a look at your overall training structure, training routine, what your strength training is like. Um, because if you're not strength training, that would be probably the first thing I would suggest we have really good evidence that doing some heavier or, or at least getting used to doing some heavier strength training, such as squats, deadlifts, calf raises, lunges, um, really is advantageous to running endurance. Um, Rich Willie talked about this. I've had several guests talk about this. I've had um, reviewed papers on the podcast talking about this. Um, don't just do your body weight stuff. Do twice a week. Um, you can start off with body weight and light weights if you're not used to that particular movement. But once you are 
used to that particular movement, slowly increase the weight so that eventually you're doing significantly heavy stuff. We're talking squats, deadlifts, um, close to your body weight, um, doing three or four sets of eight repetitions. Um, that's sort of what we're wanting to hone in on. Everyone's different. Everyone's, um, I wouldn't suggest that to a 60 year old recreational runner. Um, but generally speaking, we want to start getting heavy and that will help increase your performance, your tendon stiffness, your running efficiency, and yeah, can be very advantageous. The next tip I would probably suggest if your overall weekly mileage is low to increase your weekly mileage, increase it even if it's just slow running. We know that if you build up a big foundation and you successfully build up a slow foundation of running, then you just perform better on race day. That can be um, from 5K all the way up to marathons. I'm not sure about ultras. I'm not sure if the science is there, but um, that would be another thing if we identify that particular flaw. Um, increase the frequency of your running. If you're only running two or three times a week, I'd increase that to four to five times a week. Do it safely. Do it without an abrupt change in your overall training volume. But the more opportunities you have to adapt as a runner, the more you're going to adapt to being a runner and then your quality will improve. Um, then we're looking at the obvious elephant in the room and that's trying to improve your overall like quality sessions, like your speed sessions. And that could be strides. Um, I had Claire Bartholik on, it's probably two months ago now, talking about strides, talking about what they are, how to implement them, the benefits of them. And so if you're not familiar with strides, you can go back and listen to that episode. Great episode. Um, but that helps work on your speed in very short bursts. Uh, you could do hills. You could start training hills. If you're used to running on the flats, then increasing some elevation and running up will increase the strength and adaptability of your plantar flexes, which is essentially pushing off the ground. So your calf ankle complex, and that can definitely help you get faster on the flats. You can do hills, you can do hill repeats. You can almost do strides, but uphill strides. You then, you know, the quality interval sessions and time trials and all those, there's countless combinations and suggestions and, um, you know, you can just get creative with that. You can do um, an interval session once a week. So usually for a well-rounded program, I like to have someone do strides once a week, usually earlier in the week, like a Monday or a Tuesday. Then they do like an interval session, which would be on a Wednesday or Thursday, and then a long run on the weekend. So that interval session might be repeats of 200 meters, 400 meters, 800 meters, doing like four to six repeats of that at certain rates, like a an eight RPE of doing those. You might want to do 200s at max sprint. You might want to do 800s at eight RPE and do four to six repeats of that. All depends on your starting level. All depends on your overall goal, but that could be an option for you. You could do time trials, like once every two or three weeks, you could say, all right, let me see how fast I can do a 2K or let me see how fast I can do a 4K and then build up to that 5K and see if you can eventually get to that 20 minute or sub 20 minute mark. Um, 
getting a little bit more goal specific. So if you want to do a 5k in 20 minutes, we're looking at a four minute pace. So we're looking at going just under a four minute pace. So every two or three weeks, you might say, okay, let me run at that pace. So we'll call that your goal pace and let's do two and a half K and then two or three weeks time. Okay. Let's do that same pace, but for three and a half K and then for four and a half K and then eventually work your way up to that goal. So that's one way of being like quite specific and having that, um, those little increments, those little steps towards your overall goal. So breaking down into little mini goals and taking it from there. But yeah, like I say, let me repeat those. So strength training, increasing your slow mileage throughout the week, increasing your running frequency, increasing your quality workouts, um, and just trying to see or self-reflect or evaluate your current routine, trying to identify if there's any weak links there, and then implementing those for our last question, we have Anna and asks how to schedule strength sessions such as three strength sessions per week around a four to five times per week of running and cycling to work. So essentially trying to look at scheduling three strength sessions around a busy running schedule. Firstly, if you're doing cycling and it's just commuting to work not sure how long that, how long the ride is, but if it's just really easy tempo, I'd almost consider that as just like incidental exercise, like such as if someone walks to work or takes the stairs up, you know, to their top floor at work or just those sort of incidental exercises. If you keep it just low intensity and it's like just say under half an hour to get there, I'd just call that just incidental and we don't really need to factor it in too much. So let's say you've got your three strength sessions that you want to squeeze in. If you're running four times a week, that means there's three spare days or three other days. So what I would do is I would strength train on, I would strength train and run on two days and you would just strength train on one of those two days where it's like a short, easy run or just an easy intensity, whatever is the most appropriate for that. If you do that, if you have two run and strength days, and then you have one day dedicated just to strength, so that completes your three sessions in the week, you then have two extra days of despair in limbo, rest days if you want to be rest days. And that can balance things out quite well. You can... Um, hopefully squeeze in those strength sessions on your short, easy run days. And hopefully that just balances things out. If you have five running days per week, I would suggest probably strength training on, I'd probably not strength train three times a week. I'd probably strength train twice a week and just try within that strength session to just raise the amount of the quality or the efficiency of that session. So you do your squats, deadlifts, calf raises, lunges. You could um, maybe do three out of those four in one session and then whichever one you missed, you repeat on the second strength session. And then you can do your upper body, you can do your core, maybe upper body one day, core the other day, the next day, or the next um, strength session. 
and just trying to consolidate a better quality strength session. So you're doing that twice a week. And so now we have five runs per week, two strength sessions per week. I would dedicate one strength day purely just to strength, and then I would have one strength and run day. So that will leave one rest day. And again, you can juggle that around and see when your easy runs are, maybe structure that in with your strength day, where to position that rest day, um, up to you and trying to get that balance right. But that would be my recommendation. Um, so thanks for that, Anna. I would note that um, you want to try, when you're trying to balance all these things, you want to try and keep fresh legs for your long run or your quality run sessions. So if you're doing a speed work or something like that, we sort of want to keep the legs as fresh as possible. So a mistake I've seen a lot is um, when strength starts disrupting the running week too much. So you do a, a hard strength workout, that, you know, you might say, Brody, I listened to your episode and you said I need to go heavy. And all of a sudden you have two or three days of DOMS and it's majorly disrupting your running week. If you're doing that twice a week, that's over half the time. Well, pretty much the majority of your week, you have DOMS and it's disrupting you. Um, so if that is happening, probably means you're going too intense on your workouts. You probably just need to manipulate, adjust the dials on your weight, reps, reps sets, those sort of parameters so that it's um, about one, one and a half, maybe two days of DOMS. One day is probably ideal. And then you can adjust the week accordingly. So thanks, Anna, Nikki, Jessica, and Ashley for submitting those questions. All fantastic questions. Hopefully... You've learned something. Hopefully you can implement something different into your running week from listening to this episode. And remember, every new insight brings you one step closer to your next running breakthrough. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path. <laughs>